Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we're talking with Modar Aloui, the CEO and founder of Iris, a company that provides in-cabin scene understanding for ADAS and autonomous vehicles, including things like driver monitoring, occupant monitoring, and determining whether an autonomous vehicle needs to be cleaned or whether items were left in the back seat from the last passenger. Iris does this using cameras and other sensors and deep learning algorithms. Modar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us what Iris does? We are an in-vehicle sensing computer vision technology. We leverage image sensors along with other sensors lately in order to create a highly intelligent in-cabin that can increase safety as well as comfort and convenience for all types of vehicles. Talk about some of the use cases when you talk about this in-vehicle scene understanding. Most of us think about something like driver monitoring, maybe starting with level two ADAS type vehicles. What does your product do? What are the use cases for how this kind of uh, system would work? Yeah, so we look at every interior space of any vehicle the same way and we try to categorize it into three main groups because it technically has three main items i call them and that is humans and i'm talking about passenger vehicles primarily so humans as well as objects and then surfaces when we look at humans clearly the first thing that comes to mind is driver monitoring and occupants monitoring so for driver monitoring, clearly it's been around for a while, something that we even started early on in 2014, 2015. The idea today to 
provide a comprehensive and contextually aware driver monitoring system, primarily through camera or computer vision-based uh, algorithms that leverage image sensors. Uh, typically, a camera placed in front of a, a driver or anywhere in the cabin near the rear view mirror or somewhere near the infotainment area. And uh, the camera would actually be looking at the driver's visual behavior. We don't like to focus so much on the face only or the eyes only where the driver is looking at. Rather, uh, we like to focus on the entire context. So face analytics, body analytics, or rather upper body analytics, generally that's the only portion that's visible of the body, as well as any object that the driver is or may be interacting with, along with surfaces that the driver may also be interacting with. So you mentioned eye tracking and head movement. Can you explain sort of historically how driver monitoring systems have worked and how your product is different? Yeah, so I actually love answering this question. Historically, when the automotive industry started thinking about including driver monitoring, they wanted to focus more on one feature that is eyes on road, eyes off, off road. And uh, therefore, clearly the focus of the algorithms or the focus of what they were looking for into, in, in, in an algorithm was more of a eye tracking. They started looking for eye tracking companies. I don't think at that time they were driver monitoring companies or companies that were selling into the automotive industry. And so historically, eye tracking has been around for a long time and to the point where it has achieved a very... Uh, high level of accuracy. However, the methods used at that time, traditionally known as uh, corneal reflection, are very rigid. So they require a camera to be placed in a frontal position to, to the face. They have a narrow field of view. They require LED or some sort of active illumination that can synchronize with the camera shutter. They require a special type of camera, which is a global shutter image sensor. And so all of that was actually done initially by a couple of automotive OEMs until they realized a year or two later on that this was, although it offers the highest level of accuracy, the degrees of freedom were very limited and, and, and therefore even the regulators today, NCAP, uh, whether in Europe or even in, in Asia and whatever is upcoming here in the US, even regulators did not necessarily ask for a highly accurate eye tracking, quote unquote, uh, driver monitoring system. And some of the issues they've been running into is uh, directional sunlight where the camera basically would be blinded by the the sun simply because of the position is actually right on top of the steering wheel i believe this was publicly mentioned by the folks at uh, cadillac especially for seats and so there, there have been a number of challenges now it's a long kind of half uh, you know uh, answer to the half part of the question <laughs> But it is really just to provide context about where driver monitoring was before, why other OEMs have not adopted it so far, or if they adopted it, it is simply for the purpose of putting a check mark to the Euro NCAP 
ratings, basically, to get the five-star ratings. <laughs> However, we take a different approach. We, and I have to mention also that the traditional uh, driver monitoring through eye gaze with coordinated reflection methods uh, did not use or need to use a deep learning technologies. It was you know, known as shallow learning or, or hand-tuned features using traditional machine learning techniques. So we use a deep learning approach that gives the flexibility to the car OEM to place any camera anywhere they want, as long as it covers the face, either partially or fully. Any image sensor with any lens field of view, with any type of illumination, whether it's a global shutter or, act or, or rolling shutter type of image sensor, and as long as the image sensor has a decent frame rate that we, then we can match it with the, with the algorithm. We don't require to see both eyes. One eye is enough to predict where the gaze could potentially be. It's hardly ever where you see one eye looking at a different direction from the, <laughs> although it's possible. And then we created proxies for when, for example, the eyes are not visible because of sunglasses that have polarized type of structure or when the eyes are not visible because somebody's wearing a hat or for whatever the type of occlusion may be. Then we created a proxy for predicting where the actual head gaze would be, along with additional predictions of whether the person is alert. And so that is from the face analytics only, but then we added also, since we have the upper body area visible, we added to the equation the fact that we need to take into consideration basically the upper body movements, posture, along with action and activity. But action and activity, automatically we have to take into consideration any type of surfaces that are being touched or objects that are being utilized. So therefore, this is actually why we call what we do in-vehicle scene understanding or for more of a unanimous word, in-cabin, sensing AI, even if it's targeting just the driver alone today, we look at all of these aspects in order to provide the highest level of accuracy given the context of the scene. So you're using a broader range of inputs in order to provide a more fulsome or comprehensive understanding of what's going on with the driver than the older models of driver monitoring that just relied on eye tracking or head pose. That, that is correct. And we also, not only we provide a broader input of data using multiple neural networks, we also provide the flexibility to the OEMs to use their hardware of choice. We're flexible, we're hardware agnostic. Their location of choice, so they can avoid the mishaps that happen with other OEMs when placing the camera in front of the, the driver on top of the steering wheel column. That's kind of a problematic location that we know now and most OEMs know. Additionally, we provide a comprehensive overview of everything that's happened in the front row of the vehicle. That includes the driver as well as the front passenger when they are available. This gives a holistic context of even cognitive workload and additional analytics that we provide 
because we take into consideration the fact of whether the driver is actually talking to the front passenger. Therefore, they automatically must be paying slightly less attention to the driving task, and that's just typically how our brains work. So this is very helpful in providing as much of a broader overview as possible. So if the driver is reaching over to the front seat to grab a donut out of the bag and then pick up their coffee and you know kind of juggle those two, those are all things that your algorithm would take into consideration in deciding what's going on. Absolutely, 100%. And we do that on a frame by frame basis. So, you know, think of it as at least 30 times per second, depending on the hardware that, that's being used. So you provide this software directly to either OEMs or tier ones, and it gets incorporated into the vehicle at the time it's sold. How do customers choose the types of sensors? So can they just choose camera or do they also need to have radar or thermal or or other types of sensors? That is more on the occupant monitoring side of things. Of course, they can always add additional sensors in order to augment the confidence level of whatever analytics they're trying to do. The industry is being actually uh, picking up on this, especially after we made the announcement earlier this year in, in January 2020 at CES for our in-cabin sensor fusion AI. And the idea here is everybody's all of a sudden realizing that this entire automotive event will only be successful through fusing a number of sensors the same exact way everybody's actually has realized that for external perception. So the use of uh, radar, LIDAR, cameras, and other sensors. The same thing would have to apply to the in-cabin. In fact, when we introduced in-cabin sensor fusion AI, the first thing that comes to mind from customers is cost, but they tend to bypass or their brains tend to kind of not even think about the idea that what happens on the in-cabin is actually extremely important because this entire automotive thing is really just a means to make the car safer and therefore make whoever's inside the vehicle safer. So to go back to your question, they can always add additional sensors such as radar and thermal imagers for a better understanding of the entire in-cabin space, not particularly just for the driver. And that automatically would just help improve the confidence level of the, of the algorithms and therefore make better activates better reactive support systems, basically, and and help the vehicle make better decisions that way. So for a level two vehicle, you've mentioned driver monitoring, which would be a a pretty common use case. What are some of the other use cases? You mentioned looking at other occupants of the car. Assuming it's not a fully autonomous vehicle, that it's just a level two type vehicle that might be available today on the market, What are some of the other use cases for addressing safety or comfort uh, of occupants? Yeah. So typically anything we do has a specific goal to enhance safety, comfort, and convenience. And of course, safety is at the baseline of everything that that we offer and that we do. So even for occupants, when we think about safety, we're thinking about potentially enabling the next generation of dynamic airbag deployments by understanding body height, width, type, 
posture, orientation, volume, and of course, understanding all types of gestures as well as actions and, and activities in order for the vehicle to be much smarter about the actions or the functions that, are, that it's equipped with. For example, if the vehicle can see from through external perception algorithms that it is about to have an impact or side impacts, then it can prepare the in-cabin in a much better way in order to deploy the appropriate airbags according to how far that airbag is from the right shoulder of the front passenger, as an example, right? There is a whole host of additional safety functions such as seat belts, pretension orders, and uh, automatic adjustments of seats according to the ideal position for optimum safety. There is also, in case of a driver, you know, adjustments of the steering wheel height, for example. Going back to airbags, there's a new type of airbags that will be called separator airbags, for example, between a driver and a passenger, or knee bolsters. Uh, we see also in a lot of accidents that happen um, because there are no airbags around the knee area. The upper body is all protected, but the bottom is actually not. So understanding where the hip location as well as even if where the knees are located, when they are visible is actually quite important. And all of that, of course, just augments safety for the vehicle in general. Yeah, it's interesting about making the airbags adjustable and things like that, which we always think about, and also adjusting the steering wheel. Is your software doing facial recognition and authentication? I know we all sometimes have a couple of different settings on the car, driver number one and driver number two, and it adjusts your mirrors and everything for you. But I guess there's also the question of making sure a stranger doesn't steal your car and drive your car. Is your software capable of sort of authenticating authorized users using facial recognition? Yes, absolutely. It's a feature that comes up regularly, although it has a low priority in terms of all the features that are being asked from us, uh, simply because the use case is, as you mentioned, personalization of the vehicle rather than security or access control. And that, that applies to not only the driver, but every passenger inside the vehicle. We don't tend to focus so much on driver or person or occupant's authentication, although it is a feature that we've offered for, for, for the longest time, and it's been around for over a decade now. We tend to kind of share our opinion about the uh, performance metrics of what we offer and how uh, it should be primarily used for personalization and comfort control if, if need be, rather than for security uh, purposes and access control. And that's typically the type of use case we see anyways from our customers. So what happens in a car if your software detects that a person is, has fallen asleep? Is that up to the OEM to take the output from your software and decide what to do with it? Or are you involved in that process? It is exactly the choice of the OEM and tier one to use the outputs from our software, however they see fit best. Clearly, every OEM has a different 
culture, if you would, and they're building different products, um, different priority lists, if you would. So we see Japanese OEMs being different from European OEMs being different from OEMs here in the US. So we do not get involved in that process simply because we always believe that no matter how accurate the output from our software is, there is still a need for merging or fusing that data with other data, which we don't have access to, call it car data, fuse that data with speed or you know, braking events or steering wheel data or any type of data that the vehicle is actually providing in order to increase, again, the confidence level of the decision-making of the vehicle. So is it possible or easy to fool a driver monitoring type system? Or do you feel like with the comprehensive types of behavior that you're looking at, that it's pretty accurate? It's, uh, it's, I have to say, it's the most accurate it's ever been today, simply because we take into consideration a lot of inputs it's the most accurate it's ever been. What remains the, you know, the, not the missing parts, but the complementary parts, I would say, is the OEM's decision as to what to do with it and how, how to consider it. But I have to say, computer vision has come a very, very long way. We can estimate everything quite accurately. And, and of course, we meet and exceed the OEM's key performance uh, indicators that they set out for us. And you mentioned earlier some of the European regulators having an interest in things like driver monitoring systems. Are they mandatory in Europe? And is that the direction uh, you see things going? Yes. So Europe has been the most aggressive region when it comes to in-cabin monitoring in general. There is regulation by the Euro NCAP to mandate a incremental percentage over the next five years for driver monitoring as well as child presence detection. So the regulation basically states that every or a certain percentage of vehicles, new vehicles sold in Europe starting 2022 Although I was just reading this week, that may be pushed out to 2023 because the OEMs and everything that's happening here over the last few months. So that may be pushed out until 2023, but initially it's driver monitoring being mandated for a certain percentage of vehicles sold in Europe starting 2022 and child presence detection being mandated also for a certain number of vehicles starting 2023. And the reason the child presence detection is uh, Big topic is, of course, because of the rising amount of incidents for child left behind and heat strokes and things like that. The U.S. is, is also working on these types of regulations, which would be quite similar to what Euro NCAP has, has mandated. We know also that other Asian countries have placed regulations in place that are quite similar. For example, South Korea has mandated a while ago for commercial vehicles, and now they're moving into passenger vehicles. Same thing with China, and uh, Japan is also to, to follow. And let's 
think now about uh, a use case in the future. Let's say we have a fully autonomous level four ride service like an Uber or Lyft, but with autonomous vehicles and the type of vehicle that perhaps doesn't have any human controls for the vehicle. What are the types of services, entertainment, convenience features, comfort features that you think a ride service fleet could offer with this type of in-cabin technology? The number is could be really, I mean, the number of use cases could be almost unlimited. I can start just from the very basics that come up. And of course, everything we do is generally from a poll of the customer. And we like to kind of uh, use that strategy simply so, so we can stay very, very close to what the market need is and then amplify that through the offering that we have. So the first thing that typically has been coming up, especially for autonomous vehicles, is this feature for objects left behind when somebody takes a ride and in a, in a ride-shared vehicle and forgets a wallet or a purse or a phone or umbrella or whatever the case may be. And so throughout our data collection process, and we do that regularly, we've conducted or, or included a short survey for every participants that come in for our data collection to, to, to respond with what are the top 10 things that you have forgotten in the past in an Uber or Lyft or a type of ride-shared vehicle. And so We've combined a comprehensive list of things, but typically the top 10 are things that are, you know, personal items, laptop, backpack, phone, wallet, sunglasses, keys, tablets, you know, hats, clothing items, things like that. So, so that's become like an increasingly important use case for some of the OEMs that we're, we're working on. And we further enhanced or further offered more insights as to the items we should be actually focused on simply because we have data from surveys basically the other use cases that i that, that we we think of together with our customers are mostly around cleanliness or readiness of the actual vehicle is there a stain is there trash left behind then the vehicle needs to go back to base get serviced before it is automatically dispatched to the next ride and so that also becomes increasingly important how do you identify trash from just a simple object that's left behind and so typically you know we had a, a series of data collection protocols here and in, in-house that where we we joke and we're like well what does trash look like and it's <laughs> trash to imitate some some of that it also you know it has to do with is the is the you know is there like a small bottle of water that is uncapped or 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 you know or has the cap on what's the position of it can you you know can you see a liquid also what constitutes a stain and how can we actually identify a stain so that's a second use case i would say that that increasingly is coming up from from the oems when it comes to convenience and things like that of you course, really need like a smell sensor or something too. That, that's right. So, or at least just the air quality inside, inside. You know, whether it's good or, or or not as good as it should be. Although we don't offer anything with that regard uh, right now, but uh, clearly this is another type that of sensor that can be fused along with everything else that we do. The other the other types of use cases that come up are mainly around 
lighting, for example, if somebody's taking a ride at night, they try to reach to the seat next to them because they're looking for an item or whatever, at least you'd have some sort of illumination responding according to the, the intention or the action of the passenger. You have also the air conditioning system or, or temperature control, I should say, understanding if the person, especially if there is an additional type of sensor inside the vehicle, like a thermal camera, should the, the temperature control inside the vehicle adjust accordingly or adjust according to the number of people or to where they are seated. So these are some of the type of use cases that we've seen, especially from the autonomous vehicle focused types of. So when people talk about autonomous vehicle fleets, even before we start thinking about a camera being on inside the vehicle, we always come to the issue of privacy and who has access to this data and how is all of that used, whether it's in lawsuits, insurance, or just data being sold. Does Starbucks now get your data that shows that the passenger is finishing their last sip of a Starbucks coffee and then they're going to get the advertisement? How do you think about uh, privacy for the data that you would be collecting? So, and where does it live? Where does the data live as you're right. running these cameras? So everything we do has been designed with the uh, privacy in mind or, or designed with privacy. All of the algorithms leverage the pixels that are coming in from the image sensor to make some sort of prediction or interpretation of what the camera sees and then automatically trashes those pixels. There is very little you know, storage, even in the type of hardware that we're working with to store you know, even, even a number of images. So we do a real-time processing. That means processing on the edge. The algorithm does not store anything at all that we provide. Clearly, the customer can choose to keep a buffer of a certain images or a few seconds if they wanted to. So that's, that's the first point. When it comes to deploying the algorithm, that is really depending on the service. Is the uh, vehicle owned by the driver? As, and if so... Clearly, they would have agreed to some sort of end-user license agreement. Tesla has done it a long time ago, nine years ago, where when you try to lease or buy a, a vehicle, you do agree that there is a certain number of data that gets uploaded to the Tesla servers for the betterment, for the purpose of betterment of, of, of the vehicle and receiving the over-the-air updates, etc. And the other kind of statements there is, although the vehicle is equipped with connectivity, the OEM in this case is paying for that service fee. Therefore, that's how they are allowed to keep the data, of course, with the consent of the user. However, they, they, they also have a mention that says, we can transfer that service fee of connectivity over to you at any given time. So you should always be kind of aware of that. So there is consent that the user would have to kind of agree to what type of data or, or all data in general. That's for vehicles that, you know, the, where the person actually would own. When we're talking about ride share, clearly that's a service. So the second you download the app, <laughs> that is a type of consent that you also give. 
But then for the fleets, which you mentioned in your earlier in your question, that really depends on the company. And clearly those are the type of companies that tend to collect the most video data or image and video data, right? Most fleet operators today still use the camera, the aftermarket camera inside the fleet recording device more so than as an analytics device because you know when you talk about aftermarket device you don't necessarily connect it to the vehicle's canvas or call it the vehicle's brain for the vehicle to take certain uh, you know to activate certain actions according to what's being analyzed so all of that happens in the cloud and of course the response time is slow and therefore you do have a lot of data, image and video data that's that can potentially be personally identifiable in a cloud. But again, the fleet owners own the fleet and they hire drivers and those drivers also may need to consent to that type of data being recorded and analyzed about them. So it becomes more of an employee company type of uh, agreement or contractor impl- uh, company type of agreement. So you're pointing out that even today, when you get into an Uber, a lot of times the driver has themselves installed a a camera to protect themselves for liability or or other other things. And with an autonomous fleet, there's no driver, but certainly the use of video in the cabin, you can only imagine that that would be stored and saved for lawsuits and and for safety, I mean, it seems like it could also be used as an active monitoring. You know, some people say, well, how are people going to share rides or feel comfortable getting into a shared ride if there's no driver to kind of mediate and, you know, or is it safe? And so you could imagine in-cabin cameras being used yep. for safety. Absolutely, 100%. In fact, it's been done for the last 15 years or so in uh you know, yellow cab in New York <laughs> and, uh, and taxi, almost every, every taxi in, in, at least in Las Vegas, as, as, you know, has had, or a large number, I should say, uh, have had recording cameras. And uh, simply because this becomes a, or is a public space, it's no different from a convenience store or a bank or a supermarket where you walk in, there is a camera for, for recording and for understanding what's happening and for flagging certain events. And the autonomous vehicle with a camera built into the cabin would not be an exception of, you know, should, shouldn't be actually an exception. It's a public space that users just use as they need to. And you focused somewhat in, in the history of the company on detecting emotion and things like that for part of your scene understanding. Do you envision your product in an autonomous vehicle being able to detect when a crime is happening, when people are screaming, something inappropriate is going on? Is that something that you think your software would be helpful with? Absolutely. May I forgot to mention, but we started initially as a computer vision company that was mostly focused on emotion AI, especially through my background in human behavior understanding, you realized emotions at that time, it was a long time ago, but at that time was really a good indicator of human behavior. <laughs> so, and then of course we complemented all of that with body language uh, reading and understanding all of that. But the idea is, yes, we can get some sort of, at the very least, binary indication as to whether the person is having a good time, are happy, 
uh, about the experience or or is having a negative um, experience or a negative emotion through the number of negative emotions, whether it's sadness, disgust, anger, or what, what have you. So at the very least, you could say, is the experience positive, neutral, or just negative, period. And so clearly we can make those indications. That's just from facial microexpressions, I should say. But then we have a whole host of additional data inputs. Is the person, when there is body movement, is the person dancing or fighting? And so we should complement that with, is there a smile or an anger? <laughs> Just to give an idea here, but clearly we can make those predictions according to, um, to the neural networks we analyze in, in parallel. So your human behavior work that you're doing, you're looking at different parts of the body, the facial emotions and things that you mentioned, as well as activity detection, kind of the types of activities people are engaging in? That is correct, yes. The culmination of all the analytics that are available uh, from understanding the whole scene again is, is key. I should say, you know, just in the example I provided earlier, it would be helpful if the vehicle understands whether there is loud music therefore most probably that person was dancing actually and not whatever you know fighting so there are additional sensors that can enhance the the prediction that we can return in the algorithm for for sure and you're not using audio detection today not today no we are heavily focused on computer vision because it's the most challenging and we, as of uh, the last year or so, we started combining that with some sort of biometrics data, such as heart rates and respiration, especially from radar sensors, as well as you know, understanding temperature distribution throughout the entire body or the visible area through the thermal cameras. So we're not, in, we're not adding audio as of yet. And we believe that's something that... Uh, we can provide inputs on. I, I just don't see us combine it as well uh, today, especially the, the size of the company where we are and at the stage where we are. You mentioned thermal and body temperature. It's taken on a, a different twist now with, you know, we're here in 2020 in the middle of a global pandemic. Are you able to tell if somebody's running a fever? Certainly. Those thermal imagers are quite accurate. They can actually provide pixel level accuracy. They can be, so the algorithms basically can be trained to flag if a person is having, you know, 100 degrees uh, or higher of uh, a, a fever. That could potentially also be a use case, which we never thought of just a few months ago. That's so interesting. Um, that definitely seems like a a new use case that you might not have focused on before. We've talked about fleet vehicles. Have you talked to anyone about using your software for public transit on buses or other public transit for monitoring? Yes, we have. And the idea, at least the idea initially from our conversations are, do we outfit a certain fleet with aftermarket hardware or do we work on the next generation of new types of buses and kind of integrates these into the series production so the latter part is typically something that will take time and 
And we're also still not sure about the volume and whether it's something that we should be focused on, frankly, right away or not. But the aftermarket idea is something that can be implemented fairly quickly. And so we've discussed that. I think the question always remains, you know, how are you going to access that data and whether are you going to make any, activate any features right away in real time from it? And so at least generally the direction we see now is that all the data will have to go up to the cloud. And if there is any uh, functions that may potentially be turned on, it would be, you know, it cannot be real time. That's for sure, but it will be somewhat near real time. So you've mentioned your data, your data sets, and, and how you've thought about that a, a little bit. Let's talk about data. How did you come up with a comprehensive data set to train your algorithms, and how have you put that together? What does that involve? I can tell you it's been the longest and the most daunting task ever. <laughs> so traditionally, just for more background here, any... AI algorithm requires large amounts of data, especially if it's deep learning now. When we looked at what publicly available data there is out there for the in-cabin space, there was literally nothing. The best we could come up with is like a few YouTube videos of people just riding in their car and just, that was really, <laughs> there was nothing. That's just for the driver, let alone for like the backseat. There was literally nothing. <laughs> or uh, yeah, right, one of those. Yeah. So we had to basically early on. I mean, the decision was clear. We had to collect our own data in a number of varied vehicles and environments. I have to say, it was one of the best decisions we made early on. We so far sit on what we believe the largest repository of in-cabin data sets. We've collected millions of images, and of course, also videos from thousands of individuals that we hired at our lab here in Silicon Valley over the last five years. These individuals come in for an hour to two hour sessions, sometimes in a static vehicle, simulating a driving experience, and sometimes in an actual moving vehicle, driving on public roads. And we did that with a varied audience of different ethnicities, different ages and genders, of course, uh, with different facial attributes, people with beard, mustache, sunglasses, hats, scarf, you name it. And of course, these people were naturally, you know, have different body shapes, different clothing. And when inside the vehicle, uh, they were instructed to do a certain number of activities, sometimes with different products or objects, and sometimes just driving naturalistically and then just being themselves if they need to, you know, scratch their cheek, fine, <laughs> take that data as well for face occlusion and things like that. So you can imagine just the complexity of the data, but also the, the, the breadth of, of it. And that's really what allowed us to create our portfolio of, of neural networks today. And, and that's really what's enabled us to be the leader in the space uh, as we sit uh, today. And what kind of neural networks are you using? So of course, they're all deep neural networks. Deep is relative to the number of number of layers being used in each neural network, and the number of layers being used are a decision we make according to the level of accuracy. 
we need to achieve or the KPIs for the customer along with the compute intervals, the number of frame rates or the speed. And all of that takes into consideration the processing hardware that we are targeting, whether it's an AI chip with 10 teraops of uh, throughput or something that's uh, barely doing two teraops or so throughput and uh, how much memory is in the hardware, et cetera, et cetera. So that defines the number of layers we need to use. But in computer vision in general, the main type of neural networks is convolutional neural networks or CNNs. And of course, there is, even within CNNs, there is a number of flavors, if you would, certain techniques according to what needs uh, to be done. Sometimes we use custom layers to solve a certain problem or certain corner case, basically. And then when it comes to frameworks, we leverage the popular ones, TensorFlow and PyTorch, basically. So this is basically a supervised learning. Are you having humans who go through and uh, identify things? Absolutely. And, and that's really how everything is today. Semi-supervised or unsupervised deep learning is still in the research phase, especially when it comes to safety <laughs> applications you want to use what's being tried and tested. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the algorithm is learning from data that has been annotated by humans where the accuracy is 100% or close to it. So it is all supervised today. I believe it will have to remain that way for a while, especially for safety use cases, until the the research both in academia and industry improves when it comes to semi-supervised and, and unsupervised. So what's next for Iris? Maybe tell us a little bit about some of the customers that you have today and what you see for the company in the next year or so. We've announced a number of customers. This is, you know, it's been over the last few years from Toyota and Honda to Bosch and VW and others. Clearly the automotive industry, although it's large, it has a small number of players. Um, you have something like 14 companies controlling uh, something close to 54 brands. So we work with uh, all of them simply because all of them are working on this type of new technology and, and it's driven primarily by the regulation as we discussed. So also automotive you know, production programs tend to be very long. Yeah. They take a long time to go through the validation process before they, we can, you know, the, the algorithm or the products in general makes it to, to production. Luckily, we are nearing production now. Everything we're working on is for production that will start in 2022 and beyond. In fact, a lot of what we're working on has to be finished by 21. We're super excited to be part of this. We're uh, super excited even more uh, so because we believe of a social mission in everything that we do and we truly believe that what we're working on will actually save lives and uh, that's part of what really uh, keeps us or helps us uh, wake up in the morning and, and be excited about the work we do. So are you hiring? Are you growing? What, what are your thoughts for the next year? We're currently working on adding a small number of uh, 
additional engineers and program managers probably just until the end of the year. We will have more direction starting Q1 of next year. And the reason I say this is because we have grown organically within a company. I think I mentioned earlier that we tend to listen to customers along with the features and respond to a certain number of programs rather than just, you know, build up types of features and technologies that may end up being rejected or just not adopted for whatever reason. But I truly believe that by sometime next year, this time, we would have to at least double in size. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed hearing about what Iris is doing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks again to Modar for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new publication called Smarter Cars. It's at smartercars.substack.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.